Well, happy Father's Day. Today is Father's Day, right? And I, and I don't think that we're in a bad text for Father's Day. Honestly, I'm, I, as you know, I'm not one to follow the holidays. And just think about that for a minute. I know I'm not preaching, I'm just talking to you, but it's good to talk to you. I haven't talked with you for a while. So if you, if you chase the holidays as a, as, a, as a preacher all through the year, you'll never get anything done. You'll just be chasing holidays. Basically, there's so many holidays. So it's always nice when a text happens to coincide with the meaning of the day. So this text is full of character, qualities for godly men. And, and this is only possible for us in Christ. So I'm, I think it's very fitting that we even look at this text today. I want to continue in our study of what it means to be a deacon in the household of God. I think also that Ben's theme, one of the themes in First Timothy or First Peter, plays in with this very well. In that our identity is very much a part of what this text is about, and I think that'll become clear as we go as well. Remember, before I pray and ask God's blessing, I just want to introduce some thoughts and remind you of some things. Remember what the purpose statement of First Timothy is. Every text that we come to, it's important that we remember the purpose statement. First Timothy 3, 14-16. And we'll talk about this in a few weeks very specifically and in detail. But Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, here's the key phrase, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's a statement, there's statements in those purposes of our identity. What is our identity according to those verses? What does the Apostle Paul call us? The first thing, we're the household of God. Think of that, beloved, as we come back into this, this letter. We, as the redeemed, blood-washed people of Christ, are the household of God. What a high calling that is. One we fall so far short of to think that like Jesus said in the upper room to His disciples, if you keep My commandments, if you love Me, My Father will come to live with you. And I will live with you. My Spirit will be in you. We're the household of God. That is the identity of the church. If someone comes to you and asks you, who are you? That's one thing you can say as a believer. I am God's household. I'm part of His I'm part of His stewardship. He lives in me. I am His household. The church of the living God. We're the ones who have been called out of the world and brought into union with Christ. And in us dwells the living God. He also calls us here a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to hold up and hold out the truth of the Gospel in the world. This is our identity this is our calling. This is who we are. 
And so when we think about that, and we're going to think about that in lots more detail in a few weeks, we must ask ourselves as we're coming into 1 Timothy 3 again, what? When we look at our message, does our message fit with our identity? Do we speak? Do we herald the Gospel as God's household? Do we pray like we are God's household? Chapter 2. Do we, particularly Paul addresses the men in, in unity and prayer, do we have, do our, does our unity look like we are the household of God? Do our ladies dress and adorn themselves like we are the household of God? Do our ladies learn the Word like we are the household of God? That's what the text Paul's been working through. Chapter 2, 11 and following. Does the character of our men reflect the identity of being called God's household? Does the character of our elders and their skill in teaching reflect that calling and identity? We are God's household. Does the character of our deacons and their service reflect it? Think of those questions. Those are simply the areas of behavior that the Apostle Paul has been working through. Do each one of those things in our lives reflect the reality of our identity? We are God's household. We are the church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. I think we need to grow in every area. There is no perfect church, right brothers and sisters? We all need to grow. I need to grow. You need to grow in these things. We need the Holy Spirit to form Christ-likeness in us and through us and to, to transform us by the power of God's Word. And that's why we're looking into God's Word in 1 Timothy. We need these words to transform us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Gospel, working through these words to change what we desire, and who we are. And as I reminded you, the last week we talked about these things, Jesus Christ is not in the grave. He is risen. He is ascended. He is Lord of all. He is the King of His church. He has sent the Spirit to live in us. And He is working His will. He is interceding for us. He is active and powerful now. Every, he says, come to me and ask what you will and I will do it as long as it's in His will and for His glory. These are the things that we can pray and ask for. We are God's household, His church, the pillar, the buttress. We must reflect His glory and proclaim His truth in the world. And isn't He worthy of this? He's worthy of nothing less. And we can't give Him what He's worthy apart from Christ. Therefore, because of our identity, because of the role in the world as the church of the living God, because of the glory of our Father, and we bear His name, we must be very careful. And that's the main idea of these verses. Is we must be very careful when we come to affirm the elders of the ruler, the offices of elder and deacon. They will represent the church, right? They will carry the gospel. They will bear the name of the household 
among whom they live. And so we can submit to the Holy Spirit's will regarding His choice. Well, how do we do that? How do we submit to the Holy Spirit regarding His choice of elders and deacons? Well, we submit to this text. That's how we'd submit to the Holy Spirit. So this is the main idea of this text as we continue to work through this together. Because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Let me read the text to you. Actually, why don't we just stand together and and let's read the text in unison. Verses 8-13. through Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that You would give us a spirit of power and love and sound mind. I pray that You would call out from among us this assembly the men whom You have chosen for this office. And that You would put in our hearts a holy aspiration to become who You have called us to be. Your household. Father, we know that we are not sufficient for these things. Dependence on self in any of this is a futile, empty, worthless effort. We need the risen Christ to do His work in us. And for Your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Again, the main idea of this text, because of the office of deacon, is a critical role in the body of Christ. We must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. And so really the key question that we need to have in mind when we come to this text, here's the key question. How does a church go about affirming the men that God has chosen for the office of deacon? How do we do this? The text answers this question so very clearly. Let me show you. Well, first I'll just give you my outline. And we're only going to look at the first point today. Number one, there's five things that answer the question how a church affirms the Holy Spirit chosen deacons. Evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon. That's verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul will give us five character qualities. Those are the ones we're going to look at today. Number two, employ the testing of the prospective deacon. He calls us, test them first before they are affirmed. Number three, evaluate the wife of the prospective deacon. 
Now, I know that some folks would affirm that this particular Scripture, when referring, it says, the wives would refer to female deacons. We'll talk about that when we get to it. I believe it's actually referring to deacons' wives. And so, evaluate the wife of the prospective deacon. Number four, evaluate the relational character of the prospective deacon. Verse 12. And then number five, envision the gains of the faithful deacon. In verse 13. So these five steps are given to us in the inspiration of God to help us as a church led by Christ to affirm those men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen for the office of deacon. This morning we'll just look at the first one. Number one, evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon. And here we see five qualities. Deacons, likewise, must be, first of all, dignified. That's the first one. Not double-tongued. That's the second quality. Not addicted to much wine. There's the third one. Not greedy for dishonest gain. And then the final one. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Those are the five character qualifications of a deacon that we must evaluate. Let's look at each one of them. First of all, dignified. What does that mean? That's not a word we use very often today. I think a simple way to explain that word is serious. In fact, let me put it this way. A seriousness worthy of respect from the people of God. It's not that the deacon puts himself out there to be respected and admired by God's people, but there's a seriousness about his life that draws from the people of God a fitting respect. In other words, he's not silly about life and ministry. He's not frivolous. He's not flippant in mind and life. And this doesn't mean that a deacon is like Eeyore, right? He's just cynical all the time, depressed, negative, just groaning about everything. No, no, they're, they're joyful. But their joy is mature and deep. It's seasoned, maybe you could say, with the gravity of truth and experience. Their joy is not silly and moody. It's deep. It's steady. The deacon really must be serious about the message of the Gospel. He's serious about the mission of Christ's church. He is earnestly serious about ministry and service in the body of Christ. Why is a deacon like that? Why would a deacon be like that? I think one way to look at it is this. He's connected the dots by the grace of God. He's connected the dots in his mind between his service and his identity and the needs of sinners who, who he worships with and the advancement of the Gospel for the glory of God. You see, he knows that the way he serves will be evidence of what the Lord has done in his life. And it will affect how others view the Gospel, how others view the church, how others perceive even Jesus Christ. He is dependent on and expectant of what the ascended Christ will do in His church, but He has a seriousness worthy of respect from those He serves. 
Well, why is, why is that important? Well, again, as we said, here's the importance. And really, each one of these character qualities, I'm, I'm kind of dividing into two halves. One, the definition of what the quality means. But then secondly, why is it important? So definition and importance. I'm going to share those two halves with you for each one of these qualities. What's the importance of it? Of being serious about, about ministry and about the Gospel and about the church and about Christ. Well, His service, the way He serves, every part of His service will either attract others to or repel from the Gospel, Christ, the church itself. I mean, how many of us have, have known someone who has professed Christ and then the way they've served and lived among the church have caused us to be like, man, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want whatever you have. I don't want it. If that's the way serving, if that's the way life and service in the body of Christ looks like, I'd rather not. Thanks. I said, that can't be so by God's grace among the people who are chosen as deacons by the Holy Spirit. And it won't be. Because God is at work in them and their service will adorn the Gospel. They're serious about it. It will lead a deacon to serve with excellence and diligence and the godly attitudes of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and so on. If a man is serious about the mission of God by the Holy Spirit, these will be coming from him. He'll be serious about the fruit of the Spirit by the grace of God. This isn't the man's own work in his life. It's God's work through him. Why else is it important that he be serious in the work of ministry? Well, many people will depend on him in various ways. Think about the, um, the widows in Acts 6. Maybe a prototype of deacon, though I don't think they're actually deacons there in Acts 6. They were depending on those men to bring them food and care. Many That is the way it is in the church of Jesus Christ. We, there is a, a healthy de- interdependence in the body of Christ, isn't there? And so we're holding each other up by the strength which God supplies in so many ways. The Holy Spirit has gifted each of us to serve one another and depend upon each other. That's why He's gifted us. That's why He appoints deacons. The deacon will take that dependence seriously and he will take people's needs seriously, even as his own. I'm reminded of Philippians 2, 3, and 4 where Paul says what true humble service is. It's considering another person's needs more important than your own. Right? Isn't that what true humility is? According to the definition of Christ. And I think another reason that a deacon must be serious is that he'll be dealing with with sensitive, personal, even private issues and needs among the people of God. And these must not be handled frivolously or lightly. Think of it. Financial issues, a deacon will be privy to and serving. Those aren't light matters. Those are personal issues. Those are to be taken seriously and handled by the graces of Christ. Grief care. Right? There's so many words that can come out of a mouth, and we all fail in some way. We, we've known we've known some of this over the last months, and a deacon would take those moments of ser- service seriously, to where he's caring 
carefully for those in need. Careful that His words do not offend by the grace of God that He's caring seriously. Grief care is so important. Illness support. I've experienced that. And boy, nobody threw it in my face, right? You cared for me tenderly and graciously. A deacon must be serious about the mission that God has called him to. He must not be one to make light or joke around about the needs that God's people feel keenly. Because each one of those opportunities of ministry are opportunities to share the Gospel, to build them up in the faith. They must be handled seriously. So brothers and sisters, who among us, by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, is serving with dignity? That's the question. Who is it? May it be all of us. And may we learn to identify those who are, whom God has chosen, through the work and the grace of the ascended Christ. Remember, He promised, I will build My church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will be with you to the end of the age. So again, it is so very important that we affirm only those men whom God has chosen. Well, key question, how do we do that? We look for the one who is dignified. Second qualification here, letter B, not double-tongued. What does that mean? Well, we've, we've all sort of tossed around a phrase from time to time. You've heard that, well, his tongue's hinged in the middle. What in the world does that mean? Literally, this word means two-tongued. I think there's two possible and really two appropriate meanings that could come or implications from this word, the literal meaning, two-tongued. One emphasis or sense of this word could mean gossip. Another sense of this word could mean hypocrisy. Now let me share both of those emphasis with you. First of all, if Apostle Paul, and maybe he means both, maybe he means to give us a very broad sense, but if he's including the sense in two-tongued of gossip, what does that mean? That, that's when a person says one thing to a person's face, speaks positively about them while with them, but then degrades them to other people behind their back. What's that called? Slander. Right? Gossip. And uh, Lord willing, whenever the Lord enables me to be able to get back to teaching the letter of James on Wednesday nights, that will be the next section. James 4, 11-12 is a powerful section on slander in the body of Christ. And James concludes with, with the question, he says, who do you think you are? Because most typically, slander comes from a person evaluating other people, not by the law of God, but by their own sense of who a person should be and what they should be like. Because if we judge someone by the law of God, who falls under that? All of us do. And we all see how much we need the grace of God. But that, that's gossip, right? Saying one thing to a person's face, speaking positive about them while with them, but then behind them, degrading them to other people behind their back. Secondly, it could mean hypocrisy. Saying one thing to one person, and then saying something contradictory to another person. This is different from gossip or slander in that 
one's character isn't necessarily being degraded here. We might, I might call this, and, and I'm sure you've never heard this before, maybe you have, I, I think I made this up, it, I don't know if it's fitting or not, but we might call this person a chameleon tongue. Someone who says things to people that they want to hear. They become like who they're with. In order to garner their admiration, admiration even though what you say to someone else is contradictory. And that kind of activity is often done by someone who desires the praise or affections of others, a people pleaser. They become the kind of person that they think will be admired by the people that they are with. Or a two-tongued person might exercise that hypocritical working of his words, not to be admired by people, but for some personal selfish motive. He's a manipulator. They want to manipulate people and situations in order to get things their own way. Whatever the motive may be, here's the point. Deception is the activity of the double tongue. That's the idea. And so whether the double tongue is one that gossips or is hypocritical, the double tongue has no place in the mouth of a deacon of Christ's church. That's what Paul is calling us to. He must be a man of integrity. Loyalty, honesty, particularly in his speech. And again, we, like James says, we all fail in many ways with this, beloved, don't we? James 3, there is no other member of our bodies that are more difficult to control. In fact, what does James say? The tongue can what? No man tame. So this is why the Holy Spirit must tame our tongue. And that's how we know whom the Holy Spirit has chosen for the deacon. Because the deacon isn't a double-tongued person whom the Holy Spirit has not yet to some degree tamed their tongue. It's His work. It's the work of the ascended Christ. Why is this so important? Why is not being double-tongued so very important for the function of deacon? Well, again, he'll be working very closely with God's people as he serves them. He will know. He will know about people's personal situations and needs. He'll be aware of things that most people in the body of Christ will not be aware of. Again, financial needs, spiritual needs, people's faults, failures, weaknesses, disabilities, illnesses, even sins. And if the deacon is serving in his capacity... He must have a trustworthy tongue. He can't be a gossip. He can't be a people-pleasing manipulator. That must not be a pattern of his character. He must not use his tongue to create division in the body of Christ, setting people against one another to gain control or achieve a personal agenda. What does Ephesians 4.29 say? Would you look at that verse with me for a moment? I want you to think about something. We all make a mistake sometimes in thinking that when a spiritual issue needs to be addressed or handled in the body of Christ, that it, that it requires a, 
angry, sinful, harsh tongue. No, that's a mistake to think about that. Like that. Look at verse 29. Any, any issue in the body of Christ that a deacon would come into could be handled in this way. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, we can, we can even confront sin in one another's life in a way that is edifying. Can't we? It's possible. Because as you gently and lovingly even confront issues, you give the gospel of Jesus Christ to the repentant heart. So, a deacon must not be double-tongued. He must have a trustworthy tongue. So again, I ask you, brothers and sisters, who among us, by the power of the ascended Christ, is serving with a trustworthy tongue? And not a double tongue. May we all. Isn't that your desire when you think about these? It's like, God, I want that. I want, I want to be like that. By your grace. And, and, and not only may all of us come to that by the grace of God, but may we identify those whom God has chosen. Alright, it is very important that we identify those who the Holy Spirit has chosen. How do we do that? Again, identify the character qualities. Here's the third one. Letter C. Not addicted to much wine. Now this, this phrase, not addicted to much wine, while not exactly the same words, has the same intent as what you see in verse 3. Remember? For the elder, Paul writes, not a drunkard. Deacon must not be given to addicted to wine, not devoted even in thought or behavior to wine. Yeah, drunkenness is always condemned, right, in the Scriptures? It's never condoned anywhere. It must not be the focus of his attention. He must not have a mind that is turned to wine. He must not coddle the bottle. He must not be a man who stays near wine and sits long at it. That's the literal meaning of these words. Sits long, turns aside to it. He's just It's like a magnet pulling him over and keeping him there. Not a drunkard, not addicted, not controlled by wine. And it, notice, it says much wine. Now, now that the point of Paul in saying that, well, he can't be addicted to much wine, but he can be addicted to a little bit of wine. Right? That's not the idea. The idea is emphasis here. This is absolutely clear for us that that. The, the, the deacon must not be devoted to wine. He must not be controlled by it. He, he, must, he doesn't have to have it. He can take it or leave it. Again, the Bible doesn't say that we can't ever have wine. But it does say that we can't be controlled by it. He can take it or leave it. He must not have any controlling attachment to wine. That's the idea. Now, why is that important? Well, one reason is that he must not be, he must not give a cause for stumbling. Why must any leader, really any Christian in the church, not have a, such an attachment to wine that, that he says, well, I can, I can take it or leave it? Why? Because another brother or sister in Christ might be offended in 
his using it in their presence. Like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8, 7-13. Paul even says, I won't eat meat while the world turns if it offends my brothers and sisters in Christ who in their life before Christ had such a strong association with idol worship. If that's where they are in conscience, not that they won't ever come along and change their position of conscience, but while they're struggling in that place of weakness, man, I don't need meat at a meal with them. That's the way we ought to be with such a thing as wine. Well, another reason would be why is it important? He needs to be, must be filled with the Spirit. If he's drunk with wine, he's not filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18-21. And really, his function demands that he not be a drunkard. That would lead to neglect, wouldn't it? It's very practical here. He will have a responsibility to meet people's needs in the body of Christ. Personal needs, financial needs, facility needs. That guy can't be a drunkard. He can't have loose lips. Wow, when he's working closely with people, understanding their needs and seeing their faults and even dealing in their home and caring for them in a very practical way as deacons do and should, boy, he can't have loose lips by being on the bottle. Or or, or poor decision making. Poor discernment in meeting meeting people's needs wisely. Or even the temptation to theft, to feed a habit. How often deacons handle the finances of the church, right? Well, if he has a secret habit of drunkenness and he runs low, he could be tempted to take. Well, that, that that could be in many different cases, but this is one reason why it's so important. He must be trustworthy, not controlled by wine. Again, so, brothers and sisters... Who among us is serving without addiction to wine? May we all be. And may we identify the one whom God has chosen, those whom God has chosen. A fourth fourth quality, character quality here that we see is not greedy for dishonest gain. Letter D, not greedy for dishonest gain. This is the end of verse 8. What does that mean? Well, maybe we could say it this way. He's not controlled by a love for money. Money's a great thing. God uses money for His glory. But it's clear that we are to not love money. We'll look at that in just a moment. Not greedy for money and therefore willing to satisfy their greed by handling money dishonestly. For example, dishonest business practices. Lots of those go on right in our world and they can trickle into the church. Or how about this? Illegal withholding of taxes. Matthew 22, 15-22. The Lord says clearly, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Well, those sorts of, of, of dishonesties can trickle into the service of the church. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this from God's Word. Who's the first one? Who's the first disciple that you think of that comes to your mind as an illustration of being dishonest with money because of greed? What would you say, Keith? Judas, that's right. John 12, 6, right? And he was hypocritical. He was two-tongued as well, wasn't he? Because he said, hey, this, this, why do we, why we should have sold 
this perfume and given the money to the poor. And then there's that editorial comment by the John inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says, well, he didn't care a thing about the poor. He's the guy who was the treasurer of the company. And he liked to help himself from it, right? There's an illustration for it. And, and, and the other disciples didn't know. Certainly Jesus knew. Or think about Ananias and Sapphira. Did they have an unhealthy greed? Well, all, all greed is unhealthy. A healthy desire for money? Yes, they did. Acts 5, 1-11. They were dishonest about the funds that they had given to the church. And boy, God did not tolerate that. That's a, that's a frightening story, isn't it? And yet, in spite of that, what happened? It's a very just fascinating text where God is purifying His church there. And following that situation, the church grew. People were saved. I think of cross-references to, to other places and even in this letter. 1 Timothy 3.3, it's the same thing there for the, for the elder. Not a lover of money. Or, or Titus. Titus 1.7. For an overseer, another word for an elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. 1 Peter chapter 5 refers to this issue as well with reference to an elder. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, Peter says. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You see? That's the calling of the servants and leaders of the body of Christ. Not to be controlled by love for money. Maybe the most um, clear text on this, just go over a few chapters from where we are in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, 3-10. through 10. This is a powerful text. Talking about the love of money. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and depra depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Listen to this right here imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain with godliness. In godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And those who desire to be rich, look at that phrase, those who desire to be rich, Fall into temptation. 
into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see the seriousness of that, beloved? We don't often think about loving money as such a serious, a seriously harmful affection. It's one that must be taken from us by the, by the work of Christ. And so that's what the Apostle Paul says. He must not love money. The deacon, by God's grace, must have the spiritual maturity to trust his heavenly Father to meet his needs as he seeks after God's kingdom and righteousness, even in days of apparent shortfall. The deacon must trust his heavenly Father to provide his material goods as he works hard as unto the Lord, so that he doesn't act on the temptation to be dishonest with money or become greedy for it. Not that he won't ever be tempted, but by God's grace, he resists that temptation by faith because of the promises of his Father who says he will feed the birds and clothe the grass. Matthew 6. That's what's going on in the heart of the deacon. He trusts God. He Yeah, sure, everybody's tempted to be dishonest, right? But we can say, no, by faith, I'm going to trust my father. He feeds the birds. He clothes the grass. Now, why is that important? Again, let's underscore this with the function of the deacon. A deacon will serve God's people well if he's free of greed by God's grace. If he's free from that that desire for dishonest gain, because then he will serve them eagerly and willingly, and generously, and honestly, and freely. Those whom He serves will feel loved as He serves them. God's people will know He isn't using them. And again, very often, it is the deacon who works very closely with God's money in the body of Christ. Collection, deposits, recording, compensation, dispersion, gifts, benevolence, delivery of it. That's what deacons have done all through the New Testament church. 2 Corinthians 8, 16-24 is a perfect example of this. The Apostle Paul appointed some men to take the gift from one church and give it to another. And he describes that the men whom he appointed for that task were of reputable character. That's important. Or Philippians 4.18 Remember that Epaphroditus from the Philippian church brought a gift to the Apostle Paul. Maybe there was some financial gifting in that as well, or whatever it was. He was a faithful minister of Christ in behalf of the Philippians. Some people would even say, yeah, Epaphroditus, because of the Word, he was a faithful minister of Christ in their behalf. He was a deacon. Well, we can't establish that again because the word deacon means servant. right? He was serving. Maybe he was a deacon, I don't know. But as he fulfilled the service of bringing that gift to the Apostle Paul, he was faithful. And that's the idea that Paul is bringing across here. So again, brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, who among us, by the grace of God, has been serving without greed for dishonest gain? May we all. And may we identify those whom God has given to us. Now let's look at the last one this morning. 
Letter E, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Number five. First, just look at the word hold. And, you know, it's tempting. They must, the word must is really not in the original, but I can understand why the translators put it in there because there's no option with this. Right? This is an essential. But really, it's a participle here. These deacons serve holding the mystery of the faith. This is the description that encompasses all of their service. They are holding the mystery of the faith. That word of holding is an ongoing activity. It's their persevering character in every act of service that they, that they render to the people of God. They have the faith in their mental possession. They hold it fast. They keep it. Well, what is the mystery of the faith? Well, the word mystery, of course, is that New Testament word that talks about truths that were veiled in the Old Testament. They were hinted at. They weren't quite as clear. But then they were revealed. They were made clear. They were made manifest in the New Testament by Christ and the apostles. I'll give you some examples of this in just a moment. He's to hold fast the mystery of the faith. That word faith there is not the subjective sense of faith where we say, I trust in Christ, but it's talking about the object of our faith, Christ Himself, the truths of the Gospel. There's two parts when we say faith. Faith is either objective or subjective. Subjective, I trust. The faith, it's the doctrine that I trust in. And this is the objective sense. The truths of the Gospel found in the New Testament. The, the facts we place our trust upon. So what are the mysteries of the faith? Well, Paul gives us several through the New Testament. For example, Romans 11.25, Ephesians 1.9, Ephesians 3.0. That's not a correct... There's no Ephesians 3.46. Let's see. Ephesians 3 something, you'll find it, but this part of the faith is the unity of Jews and Gentiles, all nations coming into the church as God's one people. That's, that's one of the mysteries of the faith that was, that was veiled in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. All peoples, not just Israelites, all peoples being a part of the church. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. The powerful transformation or change of the second coming of Christ. That's a mystery that the Old Testament didn't teach clearly. Here's another one. Colossians 2.2. 1 Timothy 3.16. The incarnate Christ. That the Messiah would be the God-man. Truly God. Truly man. Right, that was veiled in the Old Testament, but absolutely clear in the New. That's a mystery of the faith. Colossians 1, 26-27. The indwelling Christ. Remember that? The mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The indwelling Christ is one of the mysteries of the faith. Ephesians 5.32 Marriage as a picture of Christ in the church is a mystery veiled in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Ephesians 6.19 Colossians 4.3 The truths of the Gospel are part of the mystery. And the last one I'll give to you is 2 Thessalonians 2.7. The lawlessness of the last days. 
are part of the mystery. Well, the deacon, here's the point, the deacon must know and believe and understand and confess accurately the New Testament Gospel truths. That's the idea. He must be able to share the true Gospel with others. His service will bring many unexpected even opportunities for this. In other words, the deacon must not be a new attendee who you do not know, who you want to motivate to be faithful to come to church. Right? That's, that, that, we can't do that. That is done so often. Well, why that guy, you know, he's, he looks pretty handy. Um, he doesn't come to church very much. Maybe he'll come to church more if we make him a deacon. That's what we'll do. No, this must be a brother who knows and believes accurately the New Testament Gospel truth. It can't be the handy guy who can build and fix anything but couldn't share the Gospel with someone. Right? We've got to understand the role of a deacon. Yes, he's a faithful servant, but he's also a faithful bearer of the truth of the Gospel. That's the ultimate goal of his ministry. Beloved, remember, remember what Jesus even Himself said as He came. Mark chapter 1, He said, I, I didn't come primarily to work these miracles. I came to preach the Gospel. Remember that in Mark chapter 1? That was Jesus' priority. Must be the priority of the deacon. The deacon must be an exemplary servant of Christ and His people who knows New Testament Gospel truth. He will share what He knows. It will happen as He serves among the people the many opportunities. He will share what He believes. He will be talking to people. He will be giving His doctrine. So He must know the truth. What He believes will affect His service. He will not be perfect in doctrine or life. No one is. Is anyone perfect in everything that they believe about the New Testament? No! We are growing! We... Think about that. Okay, I want you to think about this for a minute. I've been just think about this sometimes. Remember, remember when you first came to understand something of the gospel and Christ convicted you and you were saved. Now, fast forward to where you are today. How much more about the gospel and more clearly do you understand and believe the gospel today than then? All right, fast forward 10, 20 more years that will continue to grow exponentially. And now move it into eternity. Beloved, we, are not, we do not have a corner on, on our understanding of the truth. Only God has that corner. right? But what the, the deacon does proclaim, as he is truly born of God, he must proclaim the truth. See, that's the, that will be the defining factor of a true believer anyway, is that when truth he is confronted with, he'll eat it. And he repents and believes again and again and again. That's the defining factor of a true believer. And so, that ought to encourage us, but still call us into accountability that the truth that a, that, that a, doc, that a, that a deacon believes must be accurate with New Testament mysteries of faith. And it must also be consistent with his life. And that's the second part of this. It's so very important. He must hold the mystery of the faith, what? With a clear conscience. 
That is so important. What does that mean? Well, think of this. The deacon's doctrine will inform his conscience, right? Your doctrine is informing your conscience right now. And sometimes our conscience is misinformed. And so it accuses us when it ought not to, or it excuses us when it ought not to. And so that's why it's important for us to constantly be submitted to the Word of God, is for our conscience to be formed accurately by the Gospel and by the truth of the New Testament. But mark it down. Doctrine will inform the conscience. And therefore, conscience will form your behavior. So what you believe will always be communicated by how you behave. That's true for everybody. And so this deacon must not live violating his conscience, which has been informed by sound doctrine. In other words, his life must be consistent with the truth he confesses. He's not perfect. No one is. But his life must be consistent with the truth he professes. For example, the the deacon must not say, Jesus died for my sin. And I want Him to do a work in my life and then live rebelliously in sin, covering sin and so on and so on. Right? That's, that's dissonant. Just like the Apostle Paul said, if we died with Christ and rose again, how shall we, who, how shall we still live in it like that without repentance? All right, you could say, well, I, I, I'm forgiven. I believe in the forgiveness of God, but yet, The deacon is controlled by bitterness and unforgiveness. That's dissonant. He would be offending his conscience there. Or he might say, yeah, I believe that that Christ is the head of the church. I love that. And then yet, he he is wrecking his marriage. Right? So so many ways that, that we can say a good confession but live opposite as a way of life. And that would violate our conscience. It ought to. He must be a man who by God's grace works hard to keep a clear conscience by seeking to live a life consistent with his confession. And when he fails, and he will, what does he do? He runs to Christ. He runs to the one who is his righteousness. He runs to the one who has made propitiation for him. And he makes things right with his brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, we're not going to get into this now, but conscience is a major theme in the pastoral epistles. There's lots of references to it. It talks about seared consciences and so on. Very important. Now, why is this important? And then we'll be done. Why is it important that a, that a deacon hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If a man's life is contrasting with the gospel message that he confesses, his service will come across as hypocritical and it will discredit the gospel. It will discredit the church. It will discredit Christ Himself. The deacon must be a man who holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So, brothers and sisters, who is that among us? May it be all of us. And may we identify those whom God has chosen by the power of the ascended Christ. In closing this morning, just remind you again, you think of all these things that we've talked about. We are the household of God. That's why this matters. It's for the glory of God. 
beloved, God is glorious. He is holy. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. He is merciful, gracious, long-suffering. Do you love Him? Do you want the world to know God as He really is? That's what behooves us to take these things seriously because how we operate in the body of Christ, our behavior, will communicate to the world something of the character of God because we're His household. Our behavior matters. Doctrine, sound doctrine is of primary importance, but it's not enough. Behavior matters. We must have lives that adorn the sound doctrine. Elders, deacons, every member, we're called to bear our Father's name. How can we live as His household? This is where the weight of God's law comes upon our hearts and it's heavy because I look at these things and I know we all fall short in, in many ways. Ways that we don't even know yet. Right? First, I would say to you, abandon all self-help. Abandon it. Abandon your own strength in these things. Abandon human strength and dependence. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess, I will confess, I will continue to confess my sin and my failure, my apathy. Confess those things and run to Christ. Because we have the indwelling Spirit of Christ. And we have the interceding person of Christ. John 17 says that He prays for us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let them become ones that the world would know that you sent me and loved them the way you have loved me. Beloved, think on this. Christ is praying for us. Do you ever feel a sense of discouragement at the way the body of Christ is and the way things happen sometimes among the people of God? Beloved, that's hard and I understand it. But don't be discouraged because Jesus Christ isn't discouraged. He said He will build His church. His plans of redemption will not fail. He will not fail in the character building of any one of His true people. He says that He who began a good work in you, what? He will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Run back to the Gospel. Don't just sidestep our failures and sins and say, well, it doesn't matter too much. I'll just keep trying harder. That is, the wrong, that is the wrong response to these things. We must run to Christ and run to one another and confess our sin and ask the risen, ascended, powerful Savior to do His work. He's sufficient to cleanse. He is sufficient to change. He is sufficient to empower us. He has His ways. And His prayers will not go unanswered before the Father. He is good. And He will be glorified. Remember, I take great heart in the fact that God's redemptive purposes will never miscarry. They will never miscarry. These plans of God and Christ to build His church and to purify His people, 
they're not going to be contingent upon our failures. They are certain. And may we be drafted into them and surrendered to them by the grace of God. You know, (laughs) I've been reading through the Old Testament. God's people have always been cantankerous, right? And yet He is merciful with us again and again and again. And and He accomplishes His purposes. Even as as He comes to the very end of His patience, as it were, and says, I'm going to tear this vine out and burn it. Right? He, in the end of those chapters, often says, but I will make a new covenant with you. And you will love my law. And you will be who I've called you to be. And that's what He's done in Christ. So look to Christ, beloved. And and let me encourage you, if you're here, children, listen. If you're here today and, and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, turn to Christ. Life is not worth living apart from Jesus Christ. And more than that, God's wrath abides on all those who are resistant to Christ. We are sinful. We deserve God's judgment. All of us do. And yet, God is merciful and gracious. And He sent His Son, truly God, truly man, to live the perfect life that we could never live so that we could be clothed in His righteousness. And to take our guilt and our punishment that we could never pay so that we can live with God someday together as a family, perfected and with our Father. And that's good news, isn't it? Trust in Christ. Turn from self-righteousness. Just abandon any self-help and come to Christ alone. He's sufficient. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for Your Word and for the good hope that we have in Christ. You, Lord Jesus, are our shepherd. And You will provide us with all we need to walk in paths of righteousness. We ask You to do it. We commit our way to You. We trust in You and ask You to act in our behalf. And we know that You will for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.